Hello, everybody. This is another episode of React Roundup. We have our panelists today, Leslie Conwine. Hey, y'all. And Thomas Aylott. Hello. And our guest today is Monica Lent. How are you doing, Monica? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. That's great. This episode is sponsored by Kendo React. Progress is Kendo React is a commercial library of UI and data visualization components for React, designed to build from the ground up for React. In other words, it has zero external dependencies. The library includes more than 60 professionally developed, and trust me, they're great looking components, including powerful data grid with many advanced features such as export to PDF and Excel, plus a vast array of useful components from buttons to dropdowns, a date picker, tree view. They just look great, and it makes your website look great. And they have three really, really polished themes. It augments any existing UI component library as well, so you can use it with other component libraries if you're doing that. You can get a 30-day free trial, which enables you to use the library's complete functionality and access Kendo React's technical support. Now, these guys are legendary. They have a 93% customer satisfaction, and you can get full access for the period of the trial, and your tickets are typically answered by the Kendo React developers themselves. Now, all you have to do to get this trial is to go to kendoreact.com slash reactroundup. That's kendoreact.com slash reactroundup, and reactroundup is all one word, no dashes or underscores. So go check it out right now. So Monica, first of all, we would like to know a little bit about your background. How come did you get involved with software engineering? Great question. So to begin, I kind of started a, a bit of an untraditional way, let's say. My dad was an electrical engineer, so I kind of always grew up around computers And thanks to looking at Internet Archive recently, I found my first ever domain name, which dates back to when I was nine years old. Oh, that's <laughs> so, exciting. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, it's a work of art. You can tell that I was mm -hmm. taking word art and bringing it into Microsoft Paint and then turning that into an image map. I'm so, so excited all of a sudden. Yeah, it, it was uh, honestly worse than I remembered it. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's kind of how I got started, like learning HTML and CSS, making my Neopets page amazing. Then eventually I went to university and I actually studied Latin and ancient Greek. But yeah, I graduated and didn't really have a plan for how to use these things. I didn't want to become a grad student. And uh, yeah, keeping my developer job that I kind of started in university was, well, a pretty convenient fallback. So that's how I inadvertently actually turned my childhood hobby into the career that I have been doing now for more than 10 years. That's funny. So you start studying legacy languages. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> the oldest unsupported languages of them all. Unsupported languages. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, I liked in your talk that you say that your first job was the student webmaster role. Exactly. You talked about like the, has at the same time student and master in the name, which is really mm -hmm. cool. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I was 19 years old when I got that job. It was pretty funny because they asked me like how much experience I have. I was <laughs> like, well, I started PHP when I was like 14. So I guess I have five years of experience. Senior. They didn't laugh at me openly. I don't know what happened, <laughs> but I was completely serious when I told them that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's really good. And today you're working at... 
So I actually just quit the job that I've had for the last five years. So I was working at SumUp, which is a fintech company based in Berlin. So I was there for five years and I worked as the lead front-end engineer. And there I grew the team from being like basically me uh, to more than 15 people located in this front-end team worldwide. But I left to build my own startup so that's what I have been doing for a grand total of a week and a half. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank Amazing. you very much. <laughs> Tell us more about it. Great question. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one because uh, I think sometimes when I talk to developers about it, it's like, mm, it's a marketing tool. So marketing is kind of like a little bit, eh. Uh, to to a lot of developers, when you talk about it, it's not maybe as sexy as, I don't know, the latest library. But in essence, it's an analytic tool designed for bloggers. So you might know that some bloggers write articles that are intended to convert people through links to third-party e-commerce shops, for example, going to Amazon or Booking.com or something like that, and then they earn a commission. This is called affiliate marketing. So in essence, the application is an analytics tool specifically designed around that use case. So typically bloggers are not like ultra technical or they are technical in a way that's very specific to blogging. They know a lot about WordPress plugins, optimizing their theme, things like that. But it's not really the same kind of stuff that you would know if you were, I don't know, a product manager or a business analyst who uses all of the traditional tools Plus, those tools are too expensive. <laughs> so in essence, we kind of take all of the, the kind of things you might do in Google Analytics or Hotjar or Optimizely, these types of things, and then we bundle them together in a use case-driven analytics tool around affiliate marketing. It's really cool. I love the, the, the overall theme of, of taking all this insane power that we have in technology and, make it, and making it accessible and hyper-focused at a specific kind of use case and focusing on their particular needs and in a way that makes the most sense to that specific audience. I love that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting because you have so much data. I recently calculated it and we are collecting over two and a half million events every day just from our beta testers. Uh, So this is a lot of data, but the question that's, that's really hard is how do you make this useful to people? So it's a bit of a process of discovery for myself as well, um, because you just have no idea what kind of interesting correlations are waiting in that data. Honestly, until you start coding some graphs and you start to see where it takes you. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's really interesting because I think that at least from the world, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, we were coming from, from an age where we did not have enough data. Right, mm-hmm. we did not have enough information, mm-hmm. so it's like the age of the amazing libraries. Right, you would go into a library and it's like, oh my god, now I have all this information. This is awesome. Today is kind of the opposite moment where there's so much information out there, and now we need to like try to to to, to get the the wisdom and the knowledge from the amount of like try to understand what is noise and what is not. Right, mm-hmm. it's a it's a crazy yeah, absolutely. Uh, And especially when the audience that's consuming this data is not necessarily interested in spending all of their time Mm -hmm. digging through it, right? They're busy people, business owners, right? So you can't uh, just leave them to their own devices to hunt through things. You have to really like surface that in an actionable way. And that is something I'm learning every day. (laughs) 
<laughs> nice. Okay, so I have one question for you related to, to your React Finland talk. Mm-hmm. First of all, let me say, it's one of the best talks, tech talks I've seen, like at least in the, in the past year. It's totally really right. good. It's really good. Thank you very much. It's really interesting, like when you hear some, someone talking about like actually building software and talking about the problems that, that the, the way you were talking, it, I don't know, it's really good. First of all, would before we go into details of that talk, I would like to to understand, like from you now that you're building something from scratch, mm-hmm. and probably you were like the only dev for for a while. Maybe it's the only dev uh, up until this day. Maybe someone is helping you. I don't know. Like, what's the difference when you were talking about when you think about building software in a company that has fifteen hundred people and a company that has one person? Does it change the, the way you think about things? Of course. I think not only the, the fact that the technology is different, but of course also the fact that you have different needs and st- level of stability as a business, right? So of course, when you're in an early stage business, you don't really know if the code you're writing is going to be around in six months. You don't really know mm-hmm. whether you're going to end up becoming profitable. And of course, that puts a different level of of consideration of where to invest your effort, definitely. But of course, on the other hand, what I find really interesting so far about building something myself, I'm also working on this with my boyfriend, who's my my co-founder, who's also a software engineer. It's interesting because you know where you want to invest in quality and you know where you shouldn't be investing because that would be a waste of time. For example... One thing that makes the the analytics application we're building unique is that it can scan an existing website to find affiliate links using an algorithm. And by algorithm, I mean a fancy function, right? But this fancy function, you better believe it is the best tested piece of code you can imagine. It has so many tests because if it doesn't work, it means that people aren't actually finding the thing that they need to track. And it can be really easy to say, okay... You know, I just want to get this working fast. But when something gets more complicated, you realize really what's the value in testing. And on the other hand, uh, the user interface has pretty few tests, I would say. And I think that's okay because honestly, we don't even know if the UI is totally good. We're going to need to change it. So at the end of the day, I think it's about finding that balance and understanding really what context am I in? in order to make those appropriate decisions that make yeah. sense for the business and also for realistically, how long is that software going to be need to be maintainable? It's like the challenge of finding a, a, a connection to the ultimate value. Like what is the point? What is the purpose? Why, why are we doing this? So often developers get so caught up on, well, this is the task right in front of me and don't think about the bigger picture, how it connects, how it fits in, how it actually connects to some outcome in the real world that anybody cares about. So kind of that that valuing hierarchy gets lost. And that seems to be where a lot of, especially like junior devs, especially myself when I was a junior dev, just like going all in on like, I'm going to make this one rando thing, the investing all your time and effort without like getting permission to do that or getting like really defensive. Like I want to do this really, really high quality or I spent three weeks on this thing and they were expecting you to spend three hours on that thing. And then there's just like, there's that miscommunication that everybody just has different assumptions, assumes that everybody's on the same page. And then there's just like, 
emotions get involved? Like, how do you deal with, with those kind of unspoken assumptions that just kind of get lost in the weeds? Like distilling that down a little bit, right? I mean, Monica, like now you're in this position where you sort of get to call the shots, you're making these decisions. So you sort of inherently know what are the things that are worth spending the time on? What are things that are probably going to get refactored, you know, uh, going down that path? So putting yourself back maybe in that first student webmaster job or, or any of the jobs you've held in between, right? How do you sort of distill and get that information from the, the product owner or whoever is running the project to be able to make some of those decisions as maybe just a developer on the team? Yeah, that's that isn't that the age old question? Where do I actually invest my time? To be honest, I think this is something that it, it's a so contextual and B, it comes with just so much experience and also so much failure, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that it yeah. takes the failure and doing it wrong, I think, in order to actually recognize, all right, I've actually been through this before. So at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to being able to evaluate if I mess this up, how much is it really going to hurt me? And there are a couple of places I think you can really focus that. For example, if something is very business critical, for example, is the business going to lose money if this stops working? This is why uh, it makes a lot of sense for us to be investing tests in our onboarding flows, right? When people sign up, anytime they're putting in payment information, all of those critical pieces that come together for their very first experience, this warrants a whole lot of testing and to some degree, a little bit of paranoia, you know, like if it goes wrong, especially at certain times of the year, I can say working at SumUp. When it came to, you know, the end of the year, right before Christmas, of course, you can imagine a lot of people are getting ready for an increased sales season, right? And you just, it just makes sense to be more cautious at that point in time. I know there's like a lot of this talk about don't be afraid to deploy on Fridays, you know, but really like the question is, does that make sense for you or not? You know, what kind of impact is this going to have on your users if you have downtime on a Friday? Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's inflated confidence and it's not putting your users first, if you ask yeah. me. That's a very interesting point. I, I may sound like a broken record, but I say this from time <laughs> to time. I think that the single most thing that works is skin in the game. If it hurts on you and if you get the benefits, if it goes, if, it, if it's done correctly, then most probably you're making like better decisions than... And I think that this is a big challenge with larger companies is that the people actually doing the work when the company is so large, they, they are very like detached from, from the mission. And probably at this point in your life now, you cannot even afford to be detached from the mission since now it's your like main, main source of income or is right. It's like, so when people say like, don't, don't deploy on Friday, I would say like, I don't know, like, what, what does, does Monica say about, like, deploying day? Because she's the one who, who really get hurt if anything goes wrong. Sometimes we talk here about, should we let people deploy anytime? This is the, the, a good question. Like, should, should, should deploy be, like, anytime deploy? I think it should be anytime deploy if your team has an on-call thing. And, so, and if you deploy something bad at, and, and goes home, you mm-hmm. need to... Topic of on call is so controversial. 
Uh, should engineers be on call? Should they not be on call? Yeah. You hear people who are saying, okay, I, I did an on-call job and now, you know, I never want to do that again. I think that's totally okay. You know, like if you don't want to be on call, then you work somewhere that doesn't require people to be on call. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, well, if you do want to deploy any time of the day, then that's like a responsibility. And I've definitely seen situations where the engineers, you know, they want the keys to the kingdom, but they don't necessarily want to be responsible for something going wrong. Um, Freedom, no responsibility. Right. (laughs) I mean, then it's like, okay, uh, well, maybe you can blame this on QA or someone in operations. And that's kind of like, I don't know, it's like the classic deflection and, you know, frankly, if I was in this position and I, I heard that kind of thing, I would say, okay, then we go back to a release schedule. But, if you're not yeah. going to uh, have enough empathy for the users to, you know, stop playing ping pong and come fix the problem, um, <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, maybe there is that missing maturity. And, I mean, you just have to recognize that. Yeah, it I is. think it's partly just not being held accountable. And so much of our industry and related industries smart people or people who like to think of themselves as smart make things seem more complicated than they really are so that they can get away with stuff and kind of hide their shenanigans under a a, a veneer of, uh, ah, it's too complicated. You couldn't understand it. I have all these great reasons for why I get to do whatever I want. <laughs> Narcissistic design. I think there is a, there's a talk, right, about Oh, yeah. This one is one of my favorites. (laughs) Yeah. It's the closure, Stuart something. Yeah, Stuart Holloway. Yes. 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 It's great. Uh, Yeah. That talks about making yourself so essential in the company you work in that they can never fire you. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. This is really great. All right. So let's uh, give one more step back to the to the React Finland talk. You talk about architecture, right? Software architecture. And when you start the more practical part of your talk, you talk about essentially constraints. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you when you write software and you and you want to to, to make sure that you have a, a good lifetime in your software, it's not going to become a big ball of mud like that anything is super costly you need to create constraints. Could you go a little bit further on that? Explain a little bit that concept to us? Yeah, for sure. So the idea is that instead of thinking about architecture as something, you know, super abstract that people who don't write code anymore are responsible for, and then the rest of us just live with their decisions, (laughs) um, you can instead think about architecture as enabling constraints. So, intentionally constraining the way that we're working. I mean, you can also think about it as best practices under another name, but putting these constraints in place and we basically trade in the fact that we don't exercise all of our powers that we could have as developers. And instead we pick ways to to do less and also end up with code that is safer to run, going to last a lot longer, going to lead to fewer bugs and so forth. So one like really common example of enabling constraints is driving in a car. When you drive in a car, the reason you feel safe to drive super fast down the street is probably because there are some rules to the road, right? 
there are some lines. I mean, maybe there's even a police officer that's going to pull you over if you screw it up, right? Maybe that's the CI. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there are things that we, we use in the real world to constrain ourselves for the sake of safety and speed. And software development is really no different than that. And so it's, yeah, the, that's really the main concept. How can you give away some of the things that we used to do, you know, whether this is just you know, making an enormous mess of the dependencies in our code and instead putting structure in place and enforcing that structure. How can you essentially do that in a way that's actually maintainable, especially on a larger a larger team, a team where not everybody's sitting in the same room? Yeah, it, it's such a powerful concept. I've been learning about this recently. It kind of goes down to the kind of the psychological need for uh, certainty, you know, we, if we don't have a certain level of certainty and stability, then we have a constant feeling of anxiety. If we have certainty, if we know what's going to happen, at least, you know, in, in certain areas, we can feel comfortable and confident. And when you're feeling that level of certainty, you can move really, really quickly because you know that chaos isn't coming at you in certain ways. You know, if everybody drives on the right side of the road, you, you can go a lot faster because you don't have to worry about someone coming at you. And applying that to programming, I, I've, I've gotten into, I, I was very much on the other side of that argument for most of my career of just like valuing freedom to an extreme. And I would kind of rationalize it of like, well, we want, we can't imagine what future possibilities we want to enable. So we don't want to paint ourselves into, into a corner, which is my, my favorite saying back then. But what I wasn't realizing is that by adding all this flexibility, I was making it literally impossible to test all of the different constraints. By handling any kind of input, I was making it impossible to have certainty that I'm using this thing correctly. So if you accidentally use it wrong, you're not going to get any errors, you're not going to get any any warnings because the API that I was designing just like assumed that you knew what you were doing and you always did everything perfectly. I'm like, no. If you constrain things and be like, immediately throw a warning in somebody's face. Did You did something weird. Did you do that on purpose? Or was that a mistake? Let's you move so much faster, which is why I love, you know, the Mutuals guys kind of, uh, I guess, folks were most of the people involved in creating like React at the beginning. And the uh, Mutuals started off as being very anti-error messages. It was very, it was very <laughs> easy to shoot yourself in the foot. And React, thankfully, it got a lot of wisdom from the, the Facebook people who had been, been around the block a few times. And we're like, let's have very, very strict warnings, very, very easy to know when you've made a mistake. And I, I love how React does that at an API level. But I love how you're bringing that and, and thinking about that at, as, at a much higher level, not just at API level, but as like the architecture of an entire system and how an entire company of things can apply that concept to move faster overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I find interesting is that I think a lot of developers early in their career tend towards, okay, we need to document everything. Like if we don't have documentation for absolutely everything, every single product requirement or every single uh, thing in the system, I mean, I definitely did mm. that, then how can we possibly know what's going on? And the interesting thing is like when you get bigger than that, you know, you can, of course... You can hire technical writers. You can spend a lot of time um, doing documentation and documentation is important. 
but the amount of certainty that you get from automating as much of that would-be documentation as possible, it's so much more friendly, you know, to onboard new people, for example. And as you said, to give them, you know, real-time feedback, right? So one example that I discuss in the talk is about forbidden dependency tests. And this is something that can tell people, you know, you're violating our architecture constraints and it can happen in like just a couple of minutes after they push their code. This is like so much more resilient than uh, relying that someone who's super good at reading all of the, you know, <laughs> like imports inside your your pull request is totally yeah. going to find that that one relative import, you know, is missing a couple of dot dots to bring it to the right place. I don't know. There's no reason not to put as much of your your constraints into automation and to code as possible because it takes that burden, you know, off of people's shoulders. You also um, talk a little bit uh, in the talk about favoring copying and pasting over dependencies, which I think can be a little bit of a, I don't know, scary, controversial statement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that approach and why maybe that constraint is actually a positive thing? Yeah, this is definitely something where... um, You have two camps of people. Like after I give this talk, you have the camps of people who are like, thank you, someone finally said it. And then you have the other (laughs) camps of people who are just like, I feel so dirty, you know? And uh, it's like, okay, well, you know, software isn't there just to make you feel good about yourself. It's to do things, right? It's to (laughs) value, perform some kind of a function, hopefully make people's lives a little bit better, easier, something like that. So in essence, the reason I talk about uh, potentially deciding to copy and paste code over introducing an implicit dependency is the fact that sometimes when you create an abstraction and you bind together two pieces of code through that abstraction, it often happens that this binding together ends up creating code that is more brittle than it would have been otherwise. So for example, let's say you have two pages in your React app and they're both using the same like super amazing date picker component. And this date picker component is aware of tons of things happening inside of your app. But what happens when on one page you want to introduce the hour picker and on the other page you want to introduce, I don't know, some kind of schedule picker? I don't know. These things can start to diverge over time. And what's interesting to me is that as soon as you put a component in the shared folder, it will almost never, ever leave. So people are afraid to remove it, right? Because they're like, okay, someone might depend on this and, you know, I don't want to upset anybody. So they put it there. And then over time, this component starts to become very specialized. So instead of working in all kinds of scenarios, because it contains so much business logic, it starts to work only in those two specific places you're using it. So you have these if statements, you know, like where uh, am I no. in, this, in my application, you're passing in some kind of like weird context. You know, if I'm on the sign up, I got to do that. Mm. If I'm on, I don't know, the account screen, I need to do something different. Are they um, mailed sent to users? Uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, it's they, so they many use cases. A mess. Yeah, then you just keep adding them, right? You just keep adding more if statements every time because that's the model. Frankenstein Frankenstein components, I call them. Yeah. Yeah. 
And what's funny is like, you know, you'll make a change and depending on how your app is set up and how your team is set up, you can make another team very unhappy with you very quickly, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Because I mean, so much of like software is, it's, you know, less about code and more about people. And yes, can I get that frame? <laughs> those kind of decisions tend to have effects on the team and you can really see how this puts stress yeah. on a lot of teams, especially in front-end applications that are oftentimes, uh, you know, semi-monolithic, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've been a, a big fan of the, the copy-paste dependency thing, but I've also seen it go south. For example, like, I know you're not talking about, like, micro-dependencies, like taking parts of Lodash and embedding it into your source code because mm-hmm. of things like security updates and stuff like that. But constraining that to app-specific things I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. To think about going south, it's like problems are going to happen no matter what. But where will it be easier to fix if something goes wrong? Right. So this is one consideration. That, and that's one point to copy and paste. I think I usually like to, to, to think about whenever I see shared code, you need to ask the question like, did business, did my users ask for it to be shared? Right. Is this mm-hmm. only shared because it was like similar code or does like did this uh, need to be shared because of the design? Right. If you're not talking mm-hmm. to, to, to a tech person. So if this should not be shared because of the business needs or because of our users needs, I stop calling it shared code and I call it coupled code. This is mm. coupled. Oh, that's yeah. You know, like this is, this is, this is a bad thing. It's a bad thing. Even if they do the same thing today, most probably with time, they're gonna, they're gonna split and it's gonna generate a a problem for us. So there's nothing wrong with coupling code just in the same way. There's nothing wrong with coupling humans. Like humans have been coupling for a while. You just have to, to know what you're getting into. Are you, (laughs) are you forming a relationship that's permanent? Or are you just kind of pals hanging out for a, a couple days? Are you tightly coupling something permanently? Or are you just kind of adjacent? You also temporary? don't want to think too far ahead, right? You don't want to be marrying this person <laughs> in your head when you're just coupling up you know, for a while, right? So you also have to sort of think about what are your needs in that moment and making sure that you're not you know, abstracting prematurely or trying to share code when it's not really, doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. My favorite software uh, book is the from John Osterhout, The Philosophy of Software Design. I also had sometimes in the pics here, we're doing a book club here at Compass now. Uh, he says that 
one of the biggest source of complexities in the code base is dependencies. Dependencies in the most like simple way of thinking about it. It's like whenever I change a piece of my code, I need mm-hmm. to think about another piece of my code, consider it, or even change it. Whenever this yes. happens, we have a dependency between two places. The more dependencies I have, the more complex the code is. And and that's it. Like it generates cognitive load whenever I need to learn a lot of things before change anything. Or I have change amplification, which means like to change one thing, I need to change in 14 different places. Yes. Or, or even unknown unknowns because we don't know all the dependencies. That's why I love uh, React hooks so much and why I loved uh, Relay so much when you're, you're the co-locating all inter uh, tightly coupled things. You know, if you're married, you should probably live together. You know, if your code is absolutely <laughs> coupled together, it should probably be in the same file or be in the same folder, be in the same repo. <laughs> it's funny. But I love like the, the relay components that define, here's the GraphQL that is needed for just this component and that's it. And, or, and here is the, all of the code that goes together and that's it. Nothing else depends on this. It depends on all of it together or not at all. It's not randomly strewn across the entire world. Oh, man. Just mm-hmm. nightmares. Definitely. Mm-hmm. That's also something I need to slightly change the topic, um, which I love uh-huh. about working in TypeScript. <laughs> yes. It's kind of connected to that. It's that uh, when you have code that depends on other code, it is you know something that fails really, really early and tells you, okay, you didn't realize you were using this somewhere else. And yeah, you don't even need to write to the file in order to get that feedback that you made it. a change that would have you know, broken somewhere in your application. And this has been a huge lifesaver working on an analytics app that is like so ultra, you know, data heavy and being able to like share types between front end code and back end code. I couldn't imagine doing it without it. Yeah, just like that's such an undervalued concept of just having like, I, I totally disrespected types back in the day. I was, you know, I was <laughs> kind of from the Ruby camp, anti-Java, no type, but just like the, the power and the, the freedom and the speed you can get when basically an entire class of future problems goes away instantly when you know for sure, high certainty, huh? As soon as you type a character that you just screwed something up, got these two files married, unbeknownst to you, and now they've, they're permanently attached. Like, okay, wait, back that up. They're just, mm-hmm. they like to see other files. They're not ready to... Right. I mean, type systems are also a great example of enabling constraints, right? Because you don't just get to reassign your variable to absolutely any other type. It's going to complain. I mean, of course, you have ways that you can suppress the type system. But in general, you know, it's it's an awesome way to put limits in your code that ultimately give you so much security and confidence going forward. Yeah. But how do you deal with the situations where, like, these constraints usually make us happy 95% of the time? How do you deal with those 5% of the time where TypeScript is just making your life miserable? Is it something that with experience you just learn how to like, yep, that's life? Or 
I mean, I definitely can't tell you that I am a TypeScript expert. Like I am learning <laughs> TypeScript every day. I mean, just yesterday I was using Reduce and I forgot to return. And I spent so much time wondering, <laughs> why does it think that my thing is void? You know, and uh, sometimes it just takes a bit of rubber ducking to realize that, uh, you know, what's going on. So I'm not going to like, yeah, sit here and pretend that I know, you know, I am like the, the source of wisdom on TypeScript. But I think it has to depend a lot on what is your situation. So here we knew like, okay, I'm going to be building an analytics application. I'm doing so much data crunching. And if it goes wrong, I mean, this is data that people are using to make decisions that affect their income. So it's really important that this data is accurate. But probably, I don't know, maybe if I was building something that was less like less impactful, or maybe, you know, it was not so focused around data, then I might not choose to use TypeScript. Although mm-hmm. these days, I don't know, the auto-completion and everything mm-hmm. is something yeah. that it's, uh, I get confused when I open a regular JavaScript file and like nothing happens when I, push <laughs> it. you know, I'm just like, yeah. oh, this is so irritating. I don't know, apart from configuring build tools, which is probably my least favorite thing about software development. Um, oh my God. I think it's... it's You're the only one. Everybody else loves it. I hate them. <laughs> it's like my number one hatred, like Webpack. I, I, it's like, because I went into management, I wasn't coding a lot. And so Webpack released several new versions since I stopped mm. being an individual contributor. And I felt like every time I needed Webpack for whatever side project, I'm just like... Ugh. My goodness, I need to go look up what it what even is the latest webpack version? Oh my god. And what what's different and how many, you know, freaking files do I need to have my webpack? Yeah, it's gotten so much simpler. Has but it? it's still a, I don't a know. pretty powerful tool. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, building tools are one of those things that they almost need to be a little bit complicated because of the domain. Domain is a little bit complicated. Mm. And since you only touch like every two months, it seems that you never learn. Like I just... You just do it enough to hate it and that's it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Like if I, if I did maybe Webpack configurations as a day job, like eight hours a day, maybe I would, maybe it would be like really good, but like we only touch it like every, I don't know, every never. Yeah. That's why all my new projects are Create React app. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good one. So I have an example here. Here at Compass, we we use uh, gRPC to communicate mm-hmm. between the services, right? So and we use it to use Apache Thrift before. So all our projects are typed in Apache Thrift. It's really interesting because you're going to create a service. You create the Apache Thrift definition. It creates everything for you, like clients. You just need to, to fill in the gaps uh, of your service. It really makes things uh, really well. It's super fast. But the type system, sometimes it's like, oh, my God. Like I had a service. You know when you return a JSON and like what you return, you want to be the key. You know, you don't want to make like an array. You want to be like each key is ID and then I have an object. Those simple things that we do in JavaScript yeah. all the time. You just can't do that with a thrift definition. And that is the moment where I was like, okay, so this is the Zen moment. The interface is not going to be exactly the way you want, the way you think it's perfect. It's a little bit like, 
but <laughs> you are that a technical are, term. <laughs> yes, but you're like having a lot of benefits from because everybody is using it. So mm-hmm. that's what I think about TypeScript today. Like sometimes TypeScript is is really I think it you reach those edge cases that it makes things ten times more complicated than before. But the fact that you're using everything and it's it's giving you like all those benefits, I think it's worth it. But mm-hmm. sometimes Yeah, it's these. one of these things where I think sometimes when it depends. Sometimes it's just a pain, right? But on the other hand, I think sometimes when you have a constraint in place and people don't like it, it's sometimes more of a matter of ego or control, you know, where you just kind of want to have it the way you want it. I think that's also what happened a lot with Prettier, right? There are, you know, just a couple (laughs) of people out there lurking that vote occasionally on these polls in Twitter. You wonder who are they? The ones that are like, I don't want prettier and I will never use it. I, you know, <laughs> I just hate it. And you're like, I don't know what happened to you. Like, if what, what went wrong? But <laughs> most of the time, I think, it, you know, it comes down to this is my abstraction. This is like my way of formatting code. And I think you have to be careful that when you design these constraints in your application, that you do what you can to keep your ego out of it. Yeah. Um, So using these kind of standards is super important because you can also have people, and I have seen this, who think, okay, I'm going to build my framework on top of the framework. Everyone's going to love it. It's so productive. (laughs) And the reality is developers hate other developers' abstractions, right? I mean, they're the worst. You're forced (laughs) to use them. You're like, this sucks. And then... You write your own. <laughs> so the next person has to use it. And yeah. I think this is, uh, I don't know, it's the endless cycle. I, I think a lot, a lot of these things our code. <laughs> are so useful, though, to expose kind of a lot of that drama that's kind of boiling under the surface of like, if you're searching for jobs and you, you find you're interviewing at a place and somebody is really opinionated there about why they don't use Prettier. Okay, guess I'm not working here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. These are some of those questions you can ask people. I don't know. I have done like pr- like literally hundreds of interviews by now. And sometimes it is really amazing the things that people have such strong opinions on where you're like, I don't know, you expend a lot of emotional energy on something that is probably inconsequential and you uh-huh. just... You know, wonder yeah. how exhausting is it to to live like that? I don't Stop know. attacking me from the from the late nineties or late. When how old was I? I literally had a, a like a screaming match with somebody about tabs versus spaces at one point. Mm-hmm. Like I I knew it was like okay, I need to dial it back. Like that was my lowest point. This, uh, I've gone full circle, prettier. Yeah. No Monica, opinions. Now talking about the the blog post that, that you had that was uh, really hit. It was everywhere, shared everywhere about junior and senior developers. Do you think this is a characteristic of junior professionals? Do you think the Mm. senior professionals are are better at that? Or do you think it's just like across the board? I mean, I think it all comes down to how you define junior and senior. Because everybody has a different definition, right? right. Uh, As I wrote in that post, like I received a senior job title when I was... I don't. I think I was 26, maybe I was 24. I don't even remember. Of course, at that point, 
looking back on it, I was a junior, even though I had tech, you know, three and a half years of experience on paper, because that was still my mindset, right? It was a very immature mindset from an engineering and team perspective. So I think whether or not those kind of things are had, like engineering seniority is such a spectrum or like even a matrix, I would say. You can be yeah. senior in some areas, junior in others. And sometimes, I don't know, you you also have junior developers who exert such wisdom sometimes yes. in a situation because they haven't you know, been hardened by all of those production horror stories yet. So they're not so worried about something that ultimately is inconsequential, but I think it goes both ways. You can have people who are militant, whether they are senior or junior, <laughs> about things that are completely relevant. I think it's so much easier to end up in that spot where you sort of have such strong opinions that you're not willing to budge when you're not necessarily working on a, on a big team. The first job that I was doing development ad wasn't a developer job. I was actually working in a nonprofit and communications. No one really knew anything about what I was building, but I was tasked with sort of like creating these WordPress themes for these blogs. And it was really easy to have really strong opinions about the way I was doing it because I was the only one looking at the code, right? And so I could not only do it the way I wanted to do it, but I, you know, then found blog posts that supported my my strong <laughs> assertions about why I was doing it that way, right? Yeah, you, you kind of get in your echo chamber of your own head. I don't know. I think especially early in your career, it's so helpful to get on a team and have that code review, have that regular kind of um, cadence of of having teammates looking at your code, right? Because yeah. something about that helps you become a little more pliable, I think, and accepts other approaches. Yeah. In, in lieu of that, like back in the Tools days, I was definitely in an echo chamber and there was like, it was, you know, we were all young. We were hanging out on an IRC. It was very, you know, tribal. Uh, we didn't realize that mm-hmm. at the time, but, you know, Tools versus jQuery tribalism, it was hilarious. But occasionally there'd just be one person that would just kind of pierce the bubble that was just kind of immune to the whole tribalism thing. And that would kind of force us all to check ourselves. Like uh, John David Dalton, the guy who created Lodash, he really helped me to see how big of an echo chamber I was in because there was just like this, this like holy war that, that sprung up from nothing. I, I don't even remember what the issue was now. But I went and talked to him of like, let me just talk to him and see what the deal is. It turns out he had a legitimate point. Like, he'd made a comment on GitHub and it had been deleted and like there was all this hilarious teenage drama. I just talked to him and he's just a cool guy. He was just like making a point, like no emotional identity related drama. He's just like purely technical. You know, we did the thing and now we're pals. Like we talk regularly. You know, in lieu of working on a team, like some of us don't have the luxury of working at big places with with multiple teams. Like the best advice that I have is just force yourself to to confront and talk to the people who have opposite opinions as you and see why they care about those things. And maybe you won't change your mind, but at least you'll, you'll get to know those people on mm-hmm. a human basis. Try to understand why things are the way they are before trying to make a revolution, right? Yes. I think Jordan Peterson yeah. talks about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I like the I like the you start your your React fill and talk with that, right, Monica? With like, why do we rewrite software? Mm-hmm. A lot of it is that is like I just joined and okay, first of all, let's change the framework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I I totally had this experience where it wasn't me at the time. 
because actually it was my, well, I did that too. So I have two experiences. The first (laughs) one, I joined the company and there were no tests. And I was like, but I thought that you had to write tests. <laughs> like I was very confused because I came from academia and I had a lot of expectations about how it would work to be at a startup and there were no tests and people were not really open to tests, um, <laughs> you know, and I was just like, like, is this reality? I'm confused. Like, <laughs> so I had that situation as well where I was just like, okay, well, then I'm going to be the one that writes the tests and I'm going to be test, you know, the test lady. And if someone submits something without tests, you know, and then it became like a, a, like a tiny war of like merging things without pull requests. And I was like, no, you can't do it without pull request. But no one had to listen to me. I was just like this random girl who just joined and they're probably just like, who do you think you are? And of course, like arguing with people who are at least 10 years older than me also (laughs) didn't help. I love it. It's like tests, you know, because all my experience writing production code. (laughs) But I had also the other situation where we had like people joining the company from an acquihire. And the first thing was like, why aren't you using Material UI? Why would you ever have your own design system? And the amount of discussions was just incredible. But it was like, you know what? Like, if you're not open to the fact that we just we just don't use materially why like I'm done explaining it the fact is we just don't use it and you have to either live with that or you have to not and then do something different you know and, and sometimes that's just the reality because it's not feasible to change the things that are already there even if someone brings mm-hmm. in a good idea you know what yeah. maybe it's just not a priority or you have to be open minded to realize you know, look, that one experience that you had is not valid. And now I'm building a project that's using Material UI and I'm like, okay, it's useful, but I wouldn't have even wanted to use it in that situation. So yeah, I think it's a little bit about getting, looking at things from a higher level and picking your battles. What really matters in the long term and what doesn't? Oh, yes. Can I get that on a shirt? Yeah, choosing choosing the battles is is interesting. And it's the same thing. It's interesting because... The first situation that, that, that you talked about is like there's no tests or there's no code reviews, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's obviously a good thing. Like we all know we need to, to do some things that are good, but the attitude that sometimes we have towards solving the problem does not solve the problem and sometimes makes the problem even worse. So this is probably like a really good sign of uh, senior, like when I see a dev that is like choosing the battle. So like, I'm going to fix this one particular thing. And Mm -hmm. the way they approach it is that like everybody's on board, you know, you start, you you don't just start dropping tests everywhere. If no one tests, you'd start like, I don't know, talking about it first of all, you know, Mm -hmm. and then like show one example and make and show how, how this would, so this is this is interesting. Sometimes you, you you may even have the correct idea on your mind, but your approach to solving it is making it worse. Mm-hmm. One thing that's has been interesting for me is doing this, but from the perspective of a manager, because on the one hand, you don't want to tell people what to do, right? No one likes mm-hmm. to be told what to do. If my boss yep. were to just tell me what to do all day, I would be irritated. On the other hand, do you want like 
that the right decisions are being made. And when something is really important, you know, you might have to put your foot down. But at the end of the day, people are going to want to implement things when it's their own idea. And usually the ability of a lot of people to come together, put their brains together about something is going to yield a way better result than just leaving it to the senior engineer to solve all of the Mm -hmm. problems. I think one thing that I have learned from leaders who are like way more senior than me, like we are not even on the same scale, you know, is this mindset of coming in with loads of questions and finding out how you can kind of coach people to asking those inconvenient questions. You know, like for example, if you wanted to do a migration to TypeScript, how can you ask people what's going to go wrong? And really, you know, putting them in that position of thinking about the impact. Is this going to take us three months or is it going to take us 12 months? How much slower Mm -hmm. is this going to make our delivery while everybody learns types for the first time as JavaScript developers? I think this is like one of the, the key things that I'm still learning how to do on a team, which is, you know, basically leading from behind. How can you actually empower other people to make those decisions? And that's come to huge. conclusions with the right questions. Yeah, that's huge. Like just you know, thinking of that that again. So like the super seniors in your experience are coming in with the the questions that force other people to think. So instead of coming in with the the answer, like, okay, I'm the senior here, here's the answer, they're coming in with, okay, here are the questions you guys, all of us, need to consider before we make a decision. That's very interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's also how you nurture those other people on your team, right? It's not only like a benefit for the team as a whole and for the solution that you land on, but you're then essentially nurturing these other folks to begin to learn how to ask those questions themselves, right? So it's like you give back in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And that's so critical. Like as, as we're at this position in technology and that competition for, for engineering people that know how to do this stuff is so fierce that it's absolutely critical to know how to take people wherever they're at and bring them with you, upgrade their skills and lend leverage them instead of just like, you know, just throwing a pile of, you know, off the shelf people at a problem. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it is interesting because I've been working on, on this project and it's me into very bright but uh junior uh, devs i love them shout out to vienna and alan the way we are we're we were making the choices the architectural coding everything charted in this in this project was that it, we would go to the whiteboard and put what the questions we were trying to answer here come up uh together with two or three solutions most of the time, the solutions came from my mind because of experience, but of course we would, uh, and then pros and cons of each, trade-offs, and mm-hmm. no, there's no right answer. And then it's just like, which trade-offs are, are we choosing here? And the interesting thing is that even though I probably had an answer for, for most questions in my mind, for all the 10 times, at least half of the times, these situations brew new solutions from the, these interactions. And it's funny because I think that the three of us, we, we grew a lot in this, in this last four months in this project, both by this exercise and the thing, like I cannot, I cannot say I'm more senior just by saying, just by saying, okay, 
let's do this. It, this is not the way it works. It's like I'm only more senior because I've seen more things and I can map more solutions to things. But in the end, like we're all like choosing the solutions together. We're all thinking through the solutions together. And if a solution that I come up with is not better than the solution that they come up with, that should not be the solution that we should use. So this is interesting. It's an interesting exercise. It's, it's also very humbling to put yourself in a situation where you can be wrong, even though you have the senior near your title and the other person does not. Like if this bothers you, it's really complicated. Yeah. But if it doesn't, you're in the sweet spot of like learning. And my sweet spot of life is, is whenever I'm learning a lot and people around me are learning a lot too. Like we're all growing together. This is to me like it's, it's, it's everything. So yeah. The one thing that I've found kind of that, that ties all these things together that really accelerates learning and growth is to, to focus on what makes you uncomfortable. Like there, there's a reason why it's uncomfortable. It's like maybe I, you know, I'm tying my ego to this a little bit too much or maybe I, I feel like I'm not, I'm inadequate here and I'm, I'm like, maybe I'm doing some kind of wacky psychology thing. A question that I use to sort of gauge myself uh, in those situations is how much space am I taking up? Ooh, I think that's a really that's interesting thing to ask yourself when you're in any of these situations, no matter what, whether you're junior or senior, is like, am I taking up an appropriate amount of space in this conversation, in this code, in, in whatever it needs to be, right? Um, I found that really useful. Yeah, I need to check myself. Like, how much have I been talking in this camera? Oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, that's something that can be really, really challenging when you are in like formally a position of authority and you have to be like so conscious about, for example, you know, letting other people go first and asking people who haven't volunteered their opinion yet to share and making it, you know, extra safe environment for them to say what they think. Yeah, it's not even enough just to like be quiet, but also to like draw other people in and you know, that raises their confidence, just like you guys were talking about. Nice. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices, Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the View community. And because they're so closely tied to View and they talk to people about View all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the View community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js, and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. All right. So I think we could go to picks now. What do y'all say? Yeah. Let's do it. So Thomas, do you want to start? Yeah. So going off of what Monica was talking about, just like drawing people out, This uh, book that I've been reading lately is Get the Truth. A former CIA officer teaches how to persuade anyone to tell them the truth. It's such such an interesting thing to to think about. How can you get people to tell you the truth when they are incentivized against it? 
And always getting to the, the truth, whatever it is, is usually for the best. And getting past whatever issues are blocking us from dealing with confronting the truth and moving past it. It's such a fascinating thing. It goes in with like all the, the psychology stuff that I've been obsessed with lately and applying mm-hmm. it to the real world with fun stories and such. Nice. Good one. Leslie? So mine's totally off topic, uh, but I was on vacation this last week in Mexico City, and I'm going to pick a specific area of Mexico City if you ever get a chance to go. (laughs) It's called Xochimilco. Essentially, you know, Mexico City was like built on top of ruins, and it used to be water. So um, there's still kind of a canal system in Mexico City in certain areas of the city. And Xochimilco is this zone where you basically take like Mexican gondolas out on canals. And there are other uh, like boats around you with full kitchens, essentially. So a boat will, will come up next to yours. You can tie the boats together and they'll like cook you mole and hand it to you while you're literally on the boat. And mariachi bands will come up and play for you on their boat. Anyway. It sounds it, like fiction. I love it. It's incredible. Highly recommend. And then one related pick, which is that I saw on Twitter, uh, the CSS Working Group put out a really, well, I don't know if they put it out. I think it's something they've been working on for a while, but it's essentially an incomplete list of the mistakes made in the design of CSS. And it's a bulleted list. It's a really fascinating look at some of these conversations we're having about constraints. And once you've released something, you know, how hard is it to change those things? Uh, but I think it's really regret floats. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. Uh, you'll have to check out this list. It's, uh, pretty long, but anyway, I love the honesty and transparency behind the decision to kind of put that out there. That's nice. It's funny. The picks are getting very diversified. I think it's the first time that we have a geographical pick. (laughs) This is really, (laughs) I I thought I'd go bold. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I have two picks for today that are also not tech-related today. But uh, first of all is the Love Every Company. So I have a, a eight-month-old daughter, and they have a, this Love Every Company, they have a subscription thingy that every two months you get a box with Montessori toys and other things that are, that are good for that moment in life of the baby. And it's the best and cutest toys ever. And me and my daughter, we have a lot of fun every day in the morning play with the things that they do. And they have like lots of books with nice ideas on how to make sure that the kid is developing properly and giving her challenges and stuff like that. So, yeah. And my next pick. So when whenever we talk about health and nutrition and everything, there's so many Things that are happening, feds here and there. So if you are, so I don't claim to, to, to know the truth. So it's not, this pick is not about the truth. But if you want to fast, do intermittent fast and things like that, there's this app, Zero app. It's called Zero, Zero just Zero, the name of the app. And it's uh, really cool and it's helping a lot. So these are my two picks. What about you, Monica? Do you have any picks for today? Yes, I was thinking about it. So I'm going to also go traditional with a book. These days I'm, you know, learning mostly not about developer related things, but rather building a product, talking to customers and so on. So my pick is a book called The Mom Test 
It's by Rob Fitzpatrick. And the subtitle of the book is How to Talk to Customers and Learn If Your Product is a Good Idea When Everybody is Lying to You. And so basically, it talks about, all right, what if you were to do a customer interview with your mom? Problem is, your mom loves you. So no matter what ideal you're going to tell her, she's going to say, that's amazing, honey. You know? (laughs) But... This book is basically like customer development strategies that you can use to do a productive customer interview, even with someone who is as close to you as your mom. So it's really funny. Uh, I think it's definitely got the most personality of the customer development books I've been reading recently. So if you ever think about you know, building your own product or just generally trying to get feedback on something where you, you know don't want to get lied to, even unintentionally, by people who love you very much, then yeah, check out the mom test. That sounds awesome. That's so funny. It's another look. It's two books about the same subject, if you think about the mom test and the CIA. (laughs) 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 We are all people at the end of the day, right? (laughs) That's amazing. All right, people, that was a great episode. So... This is it. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Monica. It was great. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.